You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. What a, what, a, what a joy to be with you today and to open the scriptures, to hear as Josh prayed what, what it is that God has for us in his word, which does not return void. My name is Brady Goodwin. I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here. And uh, today we are jumping back in to our series in the book of Romans. And I want to invite you to turn in the scriptures to Romans 9. We're going to be making a turn, so to speak. It's a continuation of the argument of the book of Romans. But Romans 9, 10, and 11 form three of um, perhaps the most significant sections of scripture as it relates to how we understand the application of salvation in a person's life. And we're going to begin looking at those today by, by reading and thinking through Romans 9, 1 through 13. So I'm going to read this text. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to speak through me as, as we look at this passage, um, because it's significant, it's weighty, and um, it's, it's beautiful. And so let's read Romans 9, 1 through 13, and then I'll pray as we begin. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that as we read this text, we know with confidence that your words do not return void. We are encouraged and bolstered 
by the promise that we've read that it is not as though your word has failed. Even when we look at the situations around us that seem to call that promise into question, when we think about the people in our lives who are apart from you, when we think about even those who may share a heritage with us and they're suffering and they're grieving, Lord, we, we want to be able to see your promise. We want to be able to know that your words are faithful and true. And so we thank you that this is what this passage tells us. We pray that as we look at this text this morning, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that we would be filled with a spirit of joy and of worship at the same time of sobriety and prayerfulness. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's just stop there, all right? Just kidding. Sorry, some of you guys are new and they're like, wait a minute, that's it? Um, No, Uh, there's a weight to this text. I hope you see it. And we're, we're beginning looking at Romans 9 through 11. It's a new angle of Paul's argument. And that argument is this, that salvation is by grace alone because of Christ alone received by faith alone, but we're starting to turn a corner and ask some really specific questions that have been raised in the course of this letter. Namely, how does the doctrine of sovereign election, which we introduced two weeks ago, how does that apply to the nation of Israel? And you may go, well, why is that relevant? We have to think about it in this way. How does the doctrine of sovereign election relate to the nation of Israel, especially when we consider the promises of salvation made to them? And all of that in light of their collective unbelief. Paul would have been the one who would have heard firsthand from other people. So does this mean that God's promises are not true for Israel? All the things he said, all the things you read in your Old Testament when you look at the Bible, what God has promised, are those somehow not now applicable? This is a really important question for us to ask because if the promises to Israel have failed, then the question you ought to be asking and I ought to be asking is this, why can we trust that the same won't be true for us? If God didn't do what he said he would do then, why would we believe what he says to us now? And the question that this text is beginning to answer and which Paul will answer more directly in Romans 9 through 11 is this, has the word of God failed? Has it failed? And so as we've begun to read Romans 9, 1 through 18, Paul anticipates this question and he offers an initial response. No, the word of God has not failed. He defends this answer by pointing to two fundamental realities about the grace of God and how these realities apply to the nation of Israel, which is where we're gonna spend our focus today. And if you're thinking this seems kind of maybe not applicable to me, trust me, it is. We'll see how it is uh, is to be applied to us in just a few minutes. 
But we're gonna focus on these two things today, that God's sovereign election is received by his promise. God's sovereign election, his identification and invitation an adopting work through Jesus Christ, which elsewhere in the scripture says that happened before the foundation of the world, that we were predestined to adoption as sons and daughters. That work is received by his promise. And that God's sovereign election is a reflection of his purpose. So two things, that God's sovereign election is received by his promise and that his sovereign election is a reflection of his purpose. But before he gets to these points, we have to look and see how he begins with sorrow over his people. Look with me at verse one, as we have read. Look at this, Romans chapter nine, verses one and two. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. After what he just read and and wrote in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then in the very next paragraph, he says, my heart is filled with sorrow and unceasing anguish. Why does he say this? In light of Romans 1 through 8, it is very likely that Paul would have received an accusation from his readers. Do you even care about your people? You talk about the Jews. You talk about Israel. You talk about how they got it wrong. You talk about how they missed salvation because they pursued it by works. Do you even care about them? And Paul's response is this, you've got it wrong. I'm telling you the truth. My heart is broken over the state of my people. And even the Holy Spirit himself bears witness to my anguish. And it's as if he's saying, I can't get over it. All of the things I'm saying are true. And yet there is something in me that grieves. And I wake up in the morning and I have a few moments of peace before I remember that my people, my kinsmen, my brothers and sisters, the people that I grew up with, my family, that they don't know the hope that I have written about and it crushes me. And he says more specifically why he is in anguish when we look at verse three. He seeks to put himself in their place because Israel as a whole, apart from the examples of belief among the Jews in the early days of the spread of the gospel, the nation was cut off from Christ. This is what he means when he says that I wish that I myself would be accursed. It's the word anathema, which you have heard before. It's made our way into our language because it represents how strong a separation existed between the nation of Israel, and the God who called them into existence. Paul is so desperate. He's so heartbroken about their condition that he says, if it was possible, I would take their place. If it was possible, I would allow myself to be cut off from Christ just so that they would be reconciled to him. Can you imagine 
He knows that it is not possible. He's written in Romans 8 that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But he says, if it was possible, I would seek to take their place. And just in case we're tempted to think that he might have just been saying this, he makes it so clear. These are my brothers and sisters. These are my people. These are my kinsmen. Paul's anguish is compounded as we look at verse four by the astonishing privilege that his nation enjoyed. Why is it so significant that he says what he says? We look at verse four and we see that they were cut off from Christ in spite of the riches of their relationship with God. He tells us nine things about their relationship that indicate its significance. Look with me. The first is this in verse four, they're Israelites. The very identity of the nation is connected to their relationship with God. There has been no other nation in the history of the world that has the kind of relationship that it had as Israel with the Lord God. They were Israelites. And as a result, to them belonged the adoption. In Romans 8, we talked about the beauty of adoption in Christ, but what Paul is saying is that it was to them that that promise was first made, that God would be their father and that they would be his children. We see third, the glory. Back in the days of the temple and the tabernacle, God's glory resided between the wings of the cherubim on the mercy seat where the sacrifices were offered before God, his presence dwelled. And it was glorious, the weight, the splendor, the beauty. They were the ones who received it. The covenants, the particular promises of God to his people, those promises that as we have thought about and reflected upon the nature of covenant, we would say, they're not conditioned upon my obedience, they're conditioned upon the character of God. They were the recipients of such weighty relationships. We see next the giving of the law, that they were the ones to whom the very word of God was given. Isn't that astounding? We sit here today as the recipients, the blessing of the word of God, but they were the ones who first received it. The worship the carrying out of the rituals of temple service, which in our mind is hard to grasp because our structure is so different today. But I want you to consider the fact that they were given in the word of God, the specific instructions of how the worship of the people of God was to be carried out. Next, we see the promises, the promises of salvation, the promises of redemption, the promises of restoration through a Messiah who would come, a king who would restore and heal. We see in verse five that they were the nation to whom the patriarchs came, the ones to whom these promises were originally given. And then ultimately, they were the people from whom came Christ himself, the physical ancestry of Jesus, God in the flesh. It's for these reasons 
that Paul is devastated by the unbelief of Israel and the separation of the nation from the God who chose them. Now, it's really hard for us to grasp fully the kind of sorrow that Paul experienced. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was saved out of a very high position as a rising star within Judaism. He was, if we could say it in this way, he was someone who would have had PhDs in two fields because he knew the customs so well, he knew the history so well, he knew the the forms and the practices and the heart behind it, and yet he was brought into something completely different. And so his heart was still there, not because he wanted to go back to adherence to the law, but because his heart grieved over those whom he loved. It's hard for us to figure what that felt like, but there are some things that I think can help us that I wanna speak to. In our culture, even in the last couple of weeks, some of us are grieving because of the senseless loss of life within the Asian community, whether that's our own ancestry and ethnicity or those that we love who are a part of our families who are experiencing something so profound as what has been felt in the last couple of weeks. Set that in the context of the entirety of the last year, the injustice of those who have suffered mistreatment as racial minorities in our culture. The last year at large with respect to COVID, those of you who have lost someone, those of you who have experienced in your own body the reality of this pain, it's not exactly the same thing that Paul is talking about here. I understand that. But it helps us to approximate what it feels like to see the suffering of your people, of those who share a heritage with you. There's two other examples that I want to speak to that are different in their comparison, but I want us, I think they're analogous. They're analogous to the specific things that come up in our hearts when we see the unbelief of other people and we ask ourselves, has the word of God failed? Okay, so follow me with these. They're, they're hard examples. And you may cheer at one and revile at the other. But I, I want us to see the ways that these kinds of sorrows can exist in our heart even today. And so there's two things I want us to look at. One of them's personal. One of them's something that I've walked through before directly, and you may have as well. And the second is a little bit more communal. Here's what I mean. I have personally known men in positions of leadership whether in the church or in the home, who were not who they appeared to be. This has included pastors as well as husbands. And though their circumstances differ, what each of these situations has had in common is a public persona, something that people see outwardly that does not square with the real heart that is expressed in private. So on a public level, there can be great gifting, great personality, great skill, and even a kind of tenderness. But privately, there is manipulation and coercion and people who prey upon those in positions of vulnerability. This abuse can take the form of emotional battering up to and including physical violence and sexual predation. 
always at the core of the motivation of such a person is the desire to satisfy the self-centered and idolatrous desires of their hearts, whether it's power, control, idolatry, but it always occurs at the expense of another human being. Because God despises abuse and depression, such men and their behaviors are characteristically exposed. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. God does not delight in hidden violence against the weak. But every time this happens, the collateral damage is, is just as severe. And what compounds things to make things worse, perpetrators of such behavior, instead of confessing their abusive patterns of control, they often deflect attention elsewhere and they blame their victims or they blame their accusers in an attempt to try to cast doubt and prompt confusion, if only to protect themselves. And when this happens with pastors, it can split a congregation. Or even worse, it can lead to suspicion of Christ himself and of his church. People ask, have the promises of God failed? Have they failed? When it happens with husbands, families, and entire friend groups, can be torn asunder by the manipulative and deceptive tactics that are pursued in order to maintain control. You might be asking, you're just talking about men, is it possible for women to do this? The overwhelming evidence is that this is a problem largely in the hearts of men. It's not impossible for someone else. But even if we look at the scriptures and we see how God has in wisdom given particular leadership roles to husbands and to pastors, then we see how damaging and devastating the abuses of such positions can be. So as a pastor, I've experienced the confusion and sorrow and anger of both situations. And it's really easy for us to ask if God's promises in these kinds of circumstances have failed. When this happens, my heart grieves at the hardness of heart that is evidenced by such men. And at the same time, I lament the way in which the wives of such men are often led to leave the church, the very place where they should be most welcomed and protected. And at the same time, this is what I want us to see. It's not hopeless, okay? You guys are like, golly, it's nine o'clock in the morning. I've been humbled by the maturity that can be demonstrated in response to the pain of abuse and depression. It is not the case that people just throw their hands up and say God's promises have failed. There are people, men and women both, who have felt the pain of mistreatment at the hands of those in positions of power, and yet they see the faithfulness of God and they respond with hope. The second example I say is more communal. It's no less personal, but it's more communal because I think it's probably something that all of us have seen and felt, and we all will, as those who contend for the truthfulness of the Word of God and the primacy and exclusivity of the gospel in the hearts of men and women. And the second scenario is this, is when men and women reject Christ in order to adopt or put on an LGBTQ identity. 
Now hear me out, okay? Because you may have a position or a perspective that aligns with our culture, and you may be gearing up for something that you think I'm about to say, and I want to ask for your patience and for your grace. Here's what I mean. I'm thinking about the emotions that accompany the news of someone's repudiation of their faith as they come out publicly. And the way you feel, and the way that I feel, and in particular, the way that those of you feel who you yourselves struggle with same-sex attraction. Scripture is clear, okay? If we want to argue with the, with the Word of God, we're making a declaration that we're ready to argue with God Himself if we believe what we say about the Scriptures. Scripture is clear about what it means to pursue homosexual relationships and behavior. It reflects not only a deviation of God's design for sexuality, but also the increasing and gradual hardening of a person's heart as an idol is exchanged for the true God. By implication, Scripture would call us as well to avoid identifying ourselves with a way of living that reflects such disordered desires. But if we describe ourselves as gay or lesbian or queer or transgender, and at the same time, we seek to retain an identity of a Christian, it represents a contradiction. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 6 because he discusses the nature of disordered sexual relationships of whatever variety. And he says that to join oneself to another apart from God's design is to make a declaration that our union with Christ is less important than our sexual desires or our sexual identity. One brother of ours, who's a member here at Northway, I asked him, help me understand a little bit more about what it means for you in your fight against same-sex attraction when someone does what we've described them doing. And this is a synopsis of what he shared with me. He says, when this happens, it's as if a person declares, not only has my faith in Christ not been worth the struggle that I've finally been freed from, this is the person who repudiates Christ for the sake of a false identity, but they're saying that anyone else who struggles in the same way is a fool for holding on to Christ instead of just giving up and being who you really were all along. There's already the temptation that I fight on a daily basis that somehow feels like a thread that's about to break. And yet at the same time, there is sympathy and sorrow that I feel for such persons as they believe a lie, a lie that is only possible to believe because it's preconditioned by a seared conscience. This testimony, the testimony of so many others, whatever the situation you may find yourself, it tells us. It, I hope it encourages you at one level because despite the pain that comes when we observe other people abandon their love for Jesus, there are just as many stories. And in the end, there's going to be a lot more stories of those who have walked by faith, of those who have demonstrated the power of God to redeem and to protect those who commit themselves to him. And so you may be going, what in the world does this have in common with what Paul is saying? Let me describe the commonalities. There are obvious blessings of a relationship with God that are trampled by unbelief and rebellion. 
in both scenarios. There's the profound pain that is experienced by those whose hearts have been protected from the repudiation of their faith, but who are nonetheless left to lament the state of those that they love. And there is the prayer that somehow things might be different. And at the same time, the gratitude that God has protected our own hearts from unbelief. But most important of all, and hear this, most important of all is the assurance that despite what we see in the lives of other people, the promises of God have not failed. Despite what you see in the life of other people, the promises of God have not failed. Okay. Now we're ready to talk about our first point. Okay. We needed to take the time to do this because I want you to feel what Paul felt. I need to feel what Paul felt. I need to understand why it's so significant that he said what he said and wrote what he wrote in the first section of this passage. But let's look now at what it means. How can the promises of God not have failed? It's because God's election comes by promise. If we look at verse six, we see, we see it described in plain detail. It is not as though the word of God has failed. We read earlier at the beginning of our service, Isaiah 55, and in verse 10, it says this, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the hearer. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return from me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so despite Paul's anguish, he affirms the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the word of God for the nation of Israel. What does he mean? Look at verse, the second half of verse six. He says, not everyone who is a part of Israel descended according to the flesh is actually Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul begins to show us now, and what he's going to flesh out in great detail in the next two and a half chapters he begins to show us that it was God's design all along that his people, those whom he would call to believe upon him, were the children not of the flesh, but of the promise. And so yes, the nation of Israel received the promises and the blessings described earlier, but that it was always God's plan that his two true children would be those of promise rather than ancestry. So Abraham was the father of both Isaac and Ishmael, but it was only Isaac's offspring that were known as children of the promise. But in Genesis 16, God tells Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, that he's going to make him into a great nation. But his promise that all nations would be blessed through your offspring came to Abraham and to Isaac, not to Ishmael. 
And so part of why Paul lamented the way that he did earlier and the way that I think we would lament if we're working through the implications of this passage is that this teaching is difficult to accept. This is hard, y'all. Hear what he's saying. Despite all of the blessings that Israel received, all of the things that he enumerated in verses four and five, God's children were the children of promise alone. Those who were truly a part of his kingdom were the children of promise. Not everyone who was descended from Israel was Israel. This reality can have a haunting effect on us today. Because we start asking questions like this, why is it that some reject Christ? Even when they have had a lifetime of exposure to the gospel, and other people like their parents who have raised them in the knowledge of the Lord, they love and cherish, they care for them no matter what, but their hearts are grieved by the unbelief of their children. Why is it that some give every indication that their profession of faith is genuine, and then later on they spurn Christ to adopt another identity, whatever its expression? Why is it that some seek to represent Christ to others, but they clearly demonstrate the darkness of their own hearts through their actions and so bring shame to the cause of Christ? It haunts us. But what I want you to see is that this, as valid and honest a question as it is, is actually the wrong question to ask. The real question we should be asking is this, why would God, in light of the wickedness and rebellion of this world, choose to save anyone to begin with? Why would he do it? Notice that Paul says that it's not as though the word of God has failed. All of the brokenness, all of the rebellion, despite all of the privilege, in light of those things, God has still saved because of his promise. He has still saved because of his promise. When he told Abraham in Genesis 15 that through you, all nations of the world would be blessed, Abraham didn't have any children. When in Genesis 17, he made the same promise again, he did have one son because of his relationship to Hagar, but that wasn't the focus of God's promises. Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands and God still blessed them but that wasn't his promise. God's promise was that his offspring would come through Sarah. When God visited Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, he told Sarah that I'm gonna come back in a year and you're gonna have a baby, and she laughed at him. Like she just said, huh, yeah, right. I'm 90 years old. And yet what happened? Isaac was born the next year. Was it because of Abraham's righteousness that all of these things happened? his actual righteousness. We've talked about earlier in Romans that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, but was it actually because of the good things that he did? No. Abraham's life, though it was marked by examples of faith, was often characterized by lying, conniving, fear, and folly. And I think it's a very easy leap for us to see that in the same way, we who are in Christ that it was not because of us that God chose to save us. We deserve to be accursed and cut off. That's our true worthy inheritance. 
what we deserve to receive. You and I, you know the wickedness that resides within you. Some of you are like, I'm not that bad. Yeah, you are. You're worse. You're worse than anyone can see. We've, you've heard pastors say this before, and so don't hear the repetition. There are things in my heart that are evil. There are things in your heart that are evil. It is not because of anything we have done that God has chosen us and saved us. Because we know of the wickedness that resides within us, but because we know of the word of God and that it cannot fail, we have to know that God has saved us according to promise. And so we should lament when other people reject God, when we consider the condition of unbelievers in our lives, when we grieve the public sin of professing Christians, but we should be all the more stunned by the mercy of God that somehow your eyes and my eyes were opened to the glory and the radiance of Jesus, that you were able to see something that you could have never discovered on your own and that you would have never actually been able to walk in on your own, that you received it by promise. That's what we mean. God's sovereign election is according to promise. But what is the second part of this? If we look at verse 10, we see that his sovereign election is a reflection of his purpose. And so Paul turns to the example of Rebecca, the wife of Isaac and the children that she bore, Esau and Jacob. And as with Abraham, we see how scripture shows us that Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau were all flawed people. Their lives, were marked by dishonesty and manipulation. But look at how Paul describes God's purpose. He says that when Rebekah conceived, before their children were born, they had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The older will serve the younger. In God's purpose, he chose Jacob over Esau. This is uh, the very last part of this text. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. That's a hard thing to hear. What does that mean? It means he chose Jacob and he did not choose Esau. Was Esau still blessed? Yes, he was prosperous. We see a beautiful story of reconciliation that helps us to see that Esau was not just the, the oof, that, the oaf um, that seemed to appear earlier in the story when he sold his birthright because he showed remarkable forgiveness to Jacob for all of Jacob's nonsense. But nonetheless, God chose Jacob. Why? We see this really crucial thing, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Jacob and Esau didn't do anything to deserve the calling. God chose in order that his purpose would continue. Now, there's some mystery here, isn't there? Because you just go, why? Why does he do that? 
And there is a lot of that kind of question that we're going to be asking really over the next two months as we focus on nine through 11. And you go, two months? Let me give you a little bit of comfort. Um, John Piper preached on the book of Romans. And when he started chapter nine, he said, okay, here's what we're gonna talk about for the next year and a half, okay? So we're actually doing kind of a quick job here. He preached five sermons on verses one through five alone. Come on. We will spare you of that. Um, There's mystery that we're going to unpack. But what I want us to see today is what Paul emphasizes in this section. It's God who calls, and he calls according to his purpose. In the same way, our salvation is a result of the promise of God, which tells us that it reflects the outflow of his purposes. What he's going to grapple with in Romans 9 through 11 is whether or not the truth that God saves according to his promise and in light of his purposes means that God is unjust relative to those who don't believe. That's the very next verse that Shay's going to talk about, not next week, but the week after. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Is he unjust in his relationship to Israel? And by implication, his relationship to us. But after Paul demonstrates the truth that God is not unjust, he's going to tell us why is it then that Israel as a majority has rejected Christ. But then he's also going to explain what the ultimate hope is for Israel, for the Jews in Christ. And so that's where we're headed. But even as we finish up today, I want us to think about a few things. You who are in Christ... I want you to consider the incredible grace that it is that you are not cut off from Christ, but instead are his. That of all the things that we deserve, we haven't received that. And in response, we've actually received something that can never be taken from us. Maybe to think of it another way, and maybe a little bit more poignantly, is where in the world would you even be without Jesus? Where would you be if you were cut off? if you were outside of the hope, if you didn't experience the kind of riches that come through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Second, this needs to spill over as we think about the proper posture we should have towards unbelieving men and women. And it's not of anger. We can be angry at the offense against God, but but the right response is lament. We lament the condition of the hearts of those who don't know Christ. We pray for their salvation. And even more so, even in light of God's purposes and his promises, we share Christ boldly. We share knowing that God is doing something in the lives of people. And we want to we tell them what that hope is. Paul will say this so clear in Romans 10. How can they, how can they believe if they've not heard? Third, we can't drift towards hopelessness as if all is lost. We read a text like this and we think about the hard realities of this life and it can easily lead us to a kind of despair. Is is it gonna happen? Are his promises true? And we're gonna see later in Romans 10 and 11 that it is exactly because God is sovereign over salvation that we seek to see the hope that exists for those who do not yet know him. And then the last thing, 
is maybe you, even in this morning, have recognized the fruit of unbelief in your life. You hear what I'm saying, and the Spirit of God is convicting you at your lack of faith, that you are cut off from Christ, that you don't believe that Jesus' death was for your sin and his resurrection was for your life, then what you have the opportunity to do even now is to turn to him by faith, to believe upon him. God's sovereignty is mysterious and he awakens a heart to faith and perhaps he has awakened yours this morning. And if that's you, you have the incredible opportunity to put your hope in Christ. And so as we come to the table today, family, I hope you do so with a humble spirit of gratitude. I hope you come to the table and you say, it is nothing that I've done and everything that God has done to save me. I hope you pray for the men and women in your life who don't know Christ or who have spurned Christ that they would be restored, that they would be reconciled, but that at the same time as you hold the elements in your hand, that you hear and see the assurance of God's work for you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray and ask God to be with us as we come to the table, and then I'll talk about what this is going to look like for all of us in just a moment. But let's pray together as we think about what we've heard from God's word this morning. Father, we pray and we ask for your help. We ask for the ability, Lord. We know that there are times where your word confronts us. And I don't know if that's happened in this room this morning, but I know it's happened to me in this passage and in so many others when we think about the glory that you have revealed through Jesus, your sovereign electing grace to awaken the hearts of men and women to faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe your words as true, that we would come away from this morning stunned by the mercy of God, that we would be brought into his family not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to your own mercy, which you poured out, you lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. Would you help us even now as we come to your table to remember the means by which all of this was accomplished through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. And would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.